Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. Hello and welcome to Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Dusty. And I'm Mike. And if you're joining us for the first time, Gaze at the National Parks is the podcast that explores the trails of America's national parks, one hiking trail and one national park, one park at a time. In between our full-length episodes, which explore these trails, we have trail mix episodes, which cover a variety of topics, mostly related to the parks and the environment. Often, these trail mix episodes explore topics we didn't have time to cover in depth in a full-length episode. In this trail mix, we will be discussing the Jackson Hole Plan, or how we ended up with the Grand Teton National Park we know today. Before we dive in, let's chat about environmental conservation a bit. So what do you know about conservation when it comes to the environment, and how do you think it maybe differs from what we know as preservation? This is what I do know, and I know this from our research on the word wilderness and it showing up in legislation and how we've done so many trail mix episodes about this. Mm -hmm. So I hope everyone will go back and listen to those too. Part of colonization here in the United States involved writing into legislation that there was land that was untouched and that was part of indigenous erasure. That's where this word wilderness starts to come up. How we need to preserve this land so that we can enjoy it or whatnot. When in fact we had driven people violently out of their land that they had lived on for years, thousands of years. Then we tried to write down on paper that this land was never occupied and that we needed to preserve it or conserve it or whatnot. So I do know that there is quite a bit of conservationist history that is entirely rooted in white supremacy. Yeah, you kind of hit the nail right on the head there. So, <laughs> Oh, that's that. Oh, okay, great. Because you basically like <laughs> just went through that entire part without okay, knowing great. it. In our modern era, as defined by environmentalscience.org, conservation is a, quote, 
broad approach to preserving what is already there and the due care and attention to protecting it for the future. It is also dedicated to restoring something to a natural state and maintaining equilibrium. It is a practice and a philosophy utilizing scientific tools and methods with applied ethics and, where necessary, regulation and environmental law to limit the use of certain materials. It can apply to many areas, not just the natural environment, end quote. Typically, it covers three broad areas, including cultural heritage, conservation of ecology, and resource conservation. Conservation helps to ensure resources, landscapes, and heritage for future generations to not only enjoy, but to continue the cycle and ensure endurance. In regards to ecology and resource conservation, it is different from preservation in that conservation resources may be used and monitored, but while in preservation, nature is to be left alone and without use. So this is sort of like when you think about the national parks, when I'm thinking about preservation versus Mm. conservation versus a national forest where in the national parks, like nothing is to be touched or removed. And in a national forest, you can take things. Like that's like where my brain sort of goes to. nothing is to be touched or removed in a national park. Certainly you can't remove anything. Park staff and the people who work to help, I'm going to say maintain, because I don't know if the word is conserve or Mm. preserve that Mm -hmm. park. Yeah, sometimes they do have to chop down trees. Sure. Not trees, but like if a tree has fallen, they're going to have to... Right across a path of some sort. Right across the path, Mm -hmm. they'll have to chop a... Chop a tree. Chop a tree into parts. But yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like nature is to be left alone and without use. That's That feels a little like indigenous people have spent thousands of years preserving the natural land of what we call the United States. Part of their knowledge is understanding how Mm -hmm. uh, to interact with Mm -hmm. uh, the environment in that way. Mm -hmm. And so like when I hear that, I just think, well, that's also an example of indigenous erasure. Mm -hmm. So how and why did conservation come about? As with most events and movements in history, the start of conservation was in reaction to some other event or movement. In this case, the reaction was to the Industrial Revolution. However, some scholars argue that it actually started slightly earlier than this with the publication of a book by John Evelyn in 1662 regarding deforestation on the British Isles. That being said, it wasn't until the early 1800s at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution that the first laws went into effect with conservation like lilts. Laws and also science that better understood our changing world and the impact we had on it pushed conservation to new expanses. In America, conservation quickly became synonymous with the national park system, a system that grew by leaps and bounds, 28 national parks being established by the middle of the 1900s. That's big national parks. The nation also saw the establishment of the Department of the Interior, the the Department of Agriculture, and the U.S. Forestry Service in a relatively short period of time. As science got stronger and the century marched on, the 1960s saw significant laws that went into effect that had great impacts on conservation and greater implications for the environment at large. The Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, and the creation of the EPA signaled a commitment to the environment and toward conservation efforts. But with these advancements also came setbacks as we currently loom toward greater environmental issues. It remains to be seen what will move the goalposts further to impact the planet as a global ecosystem. 
system in a positive way. We, what fun, our dying worlds. Am I right? <laughs> right. Welcome to my darkness. Oh, but I'm serious. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting to see sort of how America quickly glommed on to the idea of like setting aside this land and making it useful for recreation purposes, essentially. These giant swaths of land. Right. Which isn't like a total slap in the face to indigenous communities. No, not at all. Um, not at all. And um, slap in the face is like even a really light term. Oh, yeah. There. Yeah. 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 So now that we have a general framework for what conservation is and what conservation is as opposed to what preservation is, let's embark on understanding how conservation as a practice has roots that are not only racist, but fundamentally undermined BIPOC folks on the whole. For our purposes to better glance at this larger problem, some vocabulary to better understand is colonialism and the global north. When we refer to colonialism or colonial practices, we quite literally mean the colonial period, both in America and to other satellite colonies of the British Empire. The global north is quite literally the northern and mostly western hemisphere, America and Europe. While the language is plain enough, let's get all of that out of the way. While there are larger issues at play in conservation practice and science today, it is worth looking at these root issues in their inception. If we're to look at the roots of conservation, we must also examine or at least acknowledge that white settlers killed and forcibly removed native people from their land both prior to becoming a nation and long after all men being endowed with, quote, certain inalienable rights, end quote. Not only were they forcibly removed from their land sacred to them, they were often moved great distances from this land by various military forces. These people who were stewards for and lived in balance with the lands they inhabited had cultivated and practiced methods in an effort to tend to the land and help it thrive. With the removal of these native peoples, these practices were replaced with those that may not have been best suited or in any way suited to these landscapes. Furthermore, these stolen lands, if not plundered for resources, became our national parks. We've talked in earlier episodes about the legacy of early conservationists and environmentalists, and we know the legacy and attitudes of people like John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt. Unfortunately, these attitudes were celebrated, or at least ascribed to, for a dizzying amount of time leading us to today. But America's environmental racism is not unique to America alone. In fact, these policies and practices have advanced elsewhere as well. The Global North, whose conservation-slash-preservation practices are not aligned to indigenous people, have taken vested interest in the land of the Global South. These satellite conservation and preservation efforts often take little account into the local community and the impact that it has to indigenous peoples of these spaces. Not only that, but the Global North's practices do not fit within the paradigm of how to effectively care for or, quote, conserve the land. It's almost like colonialism without colonizing. While many in the Global North look at these conservation and preservation efforts in the Global South as helpful, in fact, these de facto policies and practices that, quote, work in the Global North do much more harm than good. Despite the fact of European influence and colonization during the colonial period in the Global South, these spaces are wholly unique and utterly different from the Global North. In essence, one size does not fit all. And in regarding racism, beyond that suffered by the indigenous people of the land also known as America, other BIPOC individuals have suffered at the hand of racism in in conservationism and environmentalism. From exclusion from the outdoors due to distance, 
socioeconomic conditions, or fear of safety, people of color have long been excluded from or found it difficult to gain inroads into feeling welcome in outdoor spaces. This trickle-down effect of lack of access also means a lack of individuals of color who may be interested in and able to afford studies in conservation and environmental science, creating a barrier to larger involvement in crafting policy and practice within the field, ostensibly making it white-dominated. Woof you're essentially like forcing your practices onto somebody, but you have not invaded. You have not like taken over. You're not colonizing that area, but through power, money, status, you are implementing these policies or implementing these goals of conservation onto an area, but you are not physically, you know what I mean? You're not physically, without physically, without being physically there. being there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Influence. Influence. Woof. Mm-hmm. Why can't we let people just be themselves? In because their we can't. Because we can't. While conservation and preservation from the outside appear to be practices based in good intentions, it doesn't take much digging to discover that despite environmental concerns and the want to maintain landscapes and spaces for generations to come, that it is deeply flawed because it is built upon land that wasn't even ours to begin with. This brings us to the Jackson Hole Plan, an effort to preserve and expand the protection of the Teton Valley. We'd like to acknowledge that the land also known as Grand Teton National Park is the traditional and stolen land of the Eastern Shoshone, Shoshone Bannock, and Cheyenne people. In the grand scheme of things, after the indigenous people who inhabited this land, also known as Grand Teton National Park, the first white visitors to the space were fur trappers during the 19th century. These trappers utilized the Tetons as a landmark. In 1872, just to the north of Grand Tetons, the first national park was established in Yellowstone. While some intrepid outdoorsmen and explorers made their way to the Teton Valley, the population of the valley and the area known as Jackson Hole, so named for the dip in the area surrounded by such large mountains, remained relatively low and mostly populated by ranchers. Originally, Grand Teton National Park was not even proposed as a separate national park, but as an expansion to Yellowstone, first in 1897 by acting Yellowstone Superintendent Colonel S.B.M. Young, and again in 1898 by Charles Walcott, head of the U.S. Geological Survey. These plans ostensibly went nowhere. In 1916, however, with the formation of the National Park Service, the potential for protected parkland was at least more possible with an agency to advocate for and make recommendations about new protected lands. In fact, the plan was very close to passing in Congress. In this 1918-1919 plan, Yellowstone would be expanded to include part of the Tetons, Jackson Lake, and the headwaters of the Snake River. However, while passing in the House, concerns regarding branching essentially tanked the motion in the Senate, setting back the momentum in place to make the first national park even larger. And as this plan failed, commercial interests in the valley increased, sending Jackson Hole locals into a panic that the pristine landscape that surrounded them would become too commercialized. It was at this point the goals of the Park Service and locals aligned, and at this point, when it gets to feel sort of like a schemey caper with wealthy elites, local residents, and MPS employees all ensnared. 
To begin with, we should introduce Horace Albright, who was the then superintendent of Yellowstone National Park and later director of the National Park Service. Albright had been a proponent of the plan to expand the borders of Yellowstone. When this plan died, Albright was keen to suggest that updated roads in the Teton Valley may allow for better viewing, despite the lack of protection by federal agencies. This did not go over well with the residents of Jackson Hole, who wanted no further interference from the federal government. However, as time went on and more and more people came to the valley and more and more commercial attractions moved in, the residents of Jackson Hole, originally wanting no federal interference, were almost looking at the government as a potential savior. Or if not the government, then at least someone wealthy enough who could, by proxy, turn that land over to the government. Several locals and Horace Albright met in 1923 to essentially seek out a wealthy suitor who could save the day. An Easterner, someone who loved the Tetons greatly and had the money to buy up the ranches within the Teton Valley in order to protect them, enter John D. Rockefeller, Jr. Jr. (laughs) Isn't this ridiculous? Like, can you imagine having this much money to be like, well, we're going to (laughs) just gussy ourselves up and hopefully this like rich Easterner will Mr. Rockefeller, (laughs) Mr. Rock Jr. Junior <laughs> will want to just like buy up our whole town yeah. and save it so that we can preserve it. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like the Brady Bunch movie when they're like <laughs> trying to save the house and it's we need to win the competition. $20,000. $20,000. But Jan, you don't have any friends. Exactly. But honey, you don't have any rich friends. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Yeah, it's sort of, I mean... It feels very capery. It's like... Capery is the great word. It feels very capery. Capery with drapery. You say capery, and I do think like the Great Muppet caper. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. It does, though. It's like... I'm wearing capery today. (laughs) So, it does feel that way. What was my British um, Harry Potter clothing line? Oh my God, I don't remember. But that is who you're wearing. (laughs) Capery by... (laughs) Capery. By tough. <laughs> I am here for all of the accurate calling of J.K. Rowling a mm-hmm, turf mm-hmm. all day, every day. Because mm-hmm. that's what you are, honey. <laughs> all day, every day. Mm-hmm. So John D. Rockefeller Jr., son of the business magnate and head of Standard Oil, heir to a vast fortune, first visited the Yellowstone Teton area in the 1920s. On this visit in 1926, he was there with his wife and his three youngest sons, and he fell in love. With Though, his wife, again. <laughs> yeah, it was his second they, honeymoon. And they um, <laughs> renewed their vows. They did. Though there was not much guile on the part of Horace Albright, who toured the Rockefeller family through Yellowstone and later further south to the Teton Valley, a plan was hatched to, quote, conserve the land so that future generations could enjoy it. The rich eastern suitor had arrived to save the day. But there needed to be cunning to hatch this plan. Rockefeller was smart to not want his name associated with this land grab, as it would have driven prices sky high. So rather than Rockefeller making the purchases directly, a shell company was created, the Snake River Company. This company would go about doing the business of purchasing as much ranch land in the Teton Valley as they possibly could, all in the name of conserving the land and keeping it from becoming an interminable tourist trap. And while the plan commenced and ranchers were eager to sell land during the hard times of the 1920s and 30s, they prospered from these sales. 
All the while, though, another plan was moving forward. Despite the failure of earlier plans to expand Yellowstone, and adjacent to the Snake River Company's activities, the creation of Grand Teton National Park became official in 1929. The original boundaries of the park were 96,000 miles and included the Teton Range and six glacier lakes at their bases, but not an entire ecosystem. It was a stunted park, or at least so in the minds of those who had grander plans. Only a year after the creation of Grand Teton National Park did news break that Rockefeller was behind the Snake River Company purchases. Inflaming temperaments of the locals who felt as though they had been swindled by the entire experience. It enraged Wyoming congressional delegates who had sought to sidestep earlier ventures of the expansion of Yellowstone as well, and to top it all off, launched a congressional investigation to see if any wrongdoing had been committed either on the part of Snake River, Rockefeller, or the National Park Service, of which both were cleared. But despite all of this, the issue became what to do with this land that Rockefeller was holding. He had purchased it to pass it on to the federal government to create protected parkland, but the government didn't seem to want it, or at least wasn't taking a fast enough initiative to make his hard work and money worth it. He held the land for 15 years before springing into action and threatening to sell it. This threat alone pushed the president at the time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, to spring into action. Circumnavigating much of the congressional review and approval process for public land as such, Roosevelt, for his part, utilized the 1906 Antiquities Act to take the 35,000 acres that Rockefeller had accrued to create the 221,000-acre Jackson Hole National Monument in 1943. This larger amount of acreage came from other federal properties in the area, as well as Teton Forest acreage. Not only did this aggravate local residents whose mindsets were geared more toward capital rather than conservation, but also the Wyoming Senate delegation. In 1950, a quarter of a century after the inception of the Jackson Hole Plan, The acres of the Jackson Hole Monument and the original parkland merged to form what we now know as Grand Teton National Park. The plan, made in the name of conservation, allowed for yet another park in the system and better preservation for these lands than if they were bought up and used commercially. That being said, at what cost to the environment and indigenous people of this land also known as America is that of conservation in the name of national parks. The sources for today's episode include Rockefeller and the Secret Land Deals that Created Grand Teton National Park from the Washington Post by Lisa Ledneiser. The article Jewel of the Tetons from Smithsonian Magazine by Tony Perrotet. Creation of the Grand Teton National Park, a thumbnail history by the MPS. Conservation, History and Future from environmentalscience.org. Overcoming Racism in the Twin Spheres of Conservation Science and practice from the Royal Society Publishing. And American environmentalism's racist roots have shaped global thinking about conservation from theconversation.com. This has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. We're here to remind you to hike early and hike often and that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by us, Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. 
To contact us, email us at gazeatthenationalparks at gmail.com. To find out more about the parks visited on this show, visit our website, gazeatthenationalparks.com. That's gaze, G-A-Z-E. All original artwork featured on Instagram and on our website and in the gaze shop is by me, Michael Ryan. All original music was written by Dave Seaman and performed by Dave Seaman, Mariella Klinger, and Sean Sklios. Our music producer is Skyler Fortgang. This episode was edited by me, Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge that while recording this episode, that we were on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, also known as Middlesex County, New Jersey. Thank you.